Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the feminist podcast that knows Law & Order is a fantasy TV series. Today we have Kellen, Zoe, Hope, and Laura. And we are going to be talking about the NYPD, its past, its present, how it's been represented in media, and how it actually functions. We are having this conversation today in the context of the ongoing national movement against police brutality and police racism. Um, New York City has the largest police force in the country. Its police department is most frequently depicted in American TV and movies. And the NYPD is in like, you know, just in many ways, an iconic American symbol. Um, It will come as no surprise to you that we at SNTB believe it should be abolished. So today we are going to be talking about how the NYPD is represented and discussed in the media at large, and also about the the contact, uh, excuse me, about the history and the conduct of the NYPD in the real world. so I thought we could start by sharing our experiences with copaganda or pro-cop propaganda in the wild, um, specifically like TV and movies that depict uh, police officers in a positive way. Cool. Yeah. So there were two shows that really came to mind for me. One show that I did used to like and watch is The Fosters. Have any of you seen it? No. Mm-mm. So it's about this like lesbian couple that fosters like a lot of um children and they like are depicted as like good moms and like it's like a cute family and they like do all these really like they really change these like foster kids lives and it also does talk a lot about like the foster system and like shows how fucked up it is but the one mom is a cop Mm. and her like um partner cop like not her romantic partner, but her working partner cop mm-hmm. is yeah. her ex-husband. Ew. So yeah, it's like that part of it's really weird. Um, so yeah, that show. And also I really wanted to tell an anecdote about <laughs> the time I got called a bad feminist for not liking SVU. Yes. <laughs> um, so full subtweet of this person and a lot of people who know me know this story because I was so livid. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was at a gathering and this was with like other leftists specifically. And I was talking to this person and they were like, I don't know how SVU got brought up, but then I was like, oh yeah, I don't watch it. Like I've seen a couple episodes. I like get what it is and I have no interest, um, mm-hmm. which like we'll talk about more, but yeah, they were like, you don't watch SVU. And I was like, no. And they were like, Zoe, I can't believe that you call yourself a feminist oh and God. you don't watch SVU. And I said like, well, it's propaganda, and it's just like, shows so much like brutality against women which makes me really uncomfortable and the person was like but think of it this way it's like a world where the like violence against women is taken seriously Mm -hmm. and I was like right and it makes people think that like we live in that world and we do not yeah Mm. yeah that is literally Um, its function (laughs) yeah so yeah, I mean, I truly can't believe my feminism was called into question over SVU, but it made me, <laughs> now I hate the show even more. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. 
Yeah, I I hate SVU too, Law and Order SVU. Um, uh, for the same reasons. I mean, even before I I like understood what propaganda was, I was just like, this has so much gratuitous sexual violence against women that and, and not exclusively women but like a lot of it is directed at women yeah um that I was like I really can't watch this it's too much it's like feels like pornographic sometimes even mm-hmm. um so yeah I'm on board with you Zoe um canceling the person that said that you are not a good feminist um, <laughs> wrong um but I did watch a ton of regular law and order growing up like my family would frequently watch it after dinner and like uh, let me just be the first person to say that this is not a show that you should watch with like an eight-year-old um I even after I was like a child I would watch it I watch it in college when I was bored or like one time when I was extremely sick I watched like probably like 30 hours it of it over the course of two or three days I had to stop watching it when I moved to New York several years ago because I was like, oh God, I know these places now. I'm gonna get murdered here. Like I've seen this part of Riverside Park in Law and Order. This is where someone died. Will I die here? And like, that's, that is not, first of all, it's not a healthy outlook. So yes, I did have to stop watching Law and Order. But also like, that's what the show breeds like intentionally. This feeling that the world is a dangerous place and that cops protect you from that danger is an intentional outcome of a series like Law and Order. I tweeted about this one time, but like watching Law and Order so much as a kid definitely bred in me both an unrealistic expectation of the likelihood I'd get murdered and also an unrealistic expectation of the likelihood the cops would actually care about it. (laughs) Um, There's a really good episode of uh, the podcast Citations Needed that I listened to a couple months ago about... um, uh forensic evidence and how so much of what we think as the public like think we know about it is just like a total scam and it's a good episode you should definitely definitely listen to it but they go into a discussion of how shows like law and order normalize stuff like eyewitness statements and partial fingerprint analysis forensic experts all of that and like really make audiences prime to trust these things when we become jurors um but the shows also like prime us to trust cops make us think that like they have our best interests in mind make us think that they tell the truth or even that they're like (laughs) that their primary function is solving murders which lol it definitely is not at all um and the the same actually citations needed episode which again i totally recommend is where i learned that um dick wolf (laughs) aka the man with the most ridiculous name on the planet aka also the creator of law and order intentionally bucked this long tradition of TV shows that idealized defense attorneys like Perry Mason and like Matlock because he himself thought prosecutors didn't get enough credit. So like the whole thing where in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Dum dum is like completely, oh my God. thank you so much, <laughs> completely <laughs> A scam. It's a scam that's like intentional pro-cop propaganda, propaganda. Like, don't fall for it. This isn't to shame anybody who likes Law and Order. Like, I would still, like, if I saw Law and Order on TV and I wasn't in New York, I would still watch it. But I would also know that it is literally a fantasy series. It is a series that takes place in an alternate universe that is not our own. Mm-hmm. I also wouldn't shame people for not wanting to watch it. 
Yes, very <laughs> real. Um, yeah. So I had two that I was thinking about. Um, one that I do watch and one that I don't watch. <laughs> so Colin's <laughs> gonna help me out with my second one. But um, the first one is Twin Peaks. So mm, yeah, I that's a good one. It's an interesting one. I wanted to talk about because obviously it's not. If you haven't seen it, it's not about New York. Um, it's it's like in Washington State in like a really rural area um and so there's kind of this vibe with the sheriff station that like everyone's friends with everyone and they're all really reasonable and kind people um like the cops are truly the people you're rooting for in the show yeah um i feel like that's actually um now that i'm thinking about it like really similar to riverdale in that way yeah yeah riverdale has a similar thing where the cops are like you know, the people that you know to be good guys, like the sheriff, the small town sheriff, if you've ever watched once, um, like from Once Upon a Time, that that fantasy show, the cops are always like the people you're rooting for. So there's these really subtle ways that particularly small town cops are portrayed. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think, I think small town sheriff departments and things like that get portrayed in this really specific way on TV where they're they're really part of the community and actually friends with everyone and instead of arresting someone they just like drive their drunk neighbors home and shit like that um but of course that's like deeply embedded in racism as well as well as just like continual propaganda of this like false narrative of what the police have ever been in the United States Right. And the FBI, too, because Dale Cooper, um, Kyle McLaughlin's character is an FBI agent who's working with local police in Twin Peaks. And like, it's cute that it's like an FBI agent who's trying to solve like a metaphysical murder as opposed to an FBI agent who's like, I don't know, actively working to undermine civil rights movements or something like that. Right. And not only that, but like this federal agent comes to this small town and he like allies up with the local people and and like defends the small town of Twin Peaks to anyone from the FBI that comes to like check up on him. Like it's it's a weird fucking dynamic. I mean, I love that show. Don't get me wrong. Oh, for sure. But it's it's a really weird perspective on cops. Um the other one that I wanted to bring up is Brooklyn Nine-Nine because I've never watched it, but I've dated a few people who liked this show, and I feel like it's definitely pro-cop propaganda, um, and it's also like a lib-cop show yes, in the definitely. sense that it's like, uh, we're clear queer black people in charge of this police department, and queer people of color, like, with accents within our like rank so we're actually the good guys um but part of nypd yeah so so i i um watch brooklyn 99 and i there like things about it that i find very funny and also like very moving if you there's this ongoing meme um right now on twitter that's like because they're they're renewed for i guess an eighth season i want to say um and they're in the middle they're like not it's not showing right now so they're going to start filming i guess whenever this whole pandemic thing calms down i don't know whatever anyway the the like thing on twitter is people just being like let's hope brooklyn 99 starts with like the you know the, the opening scene of season eight is jake peralta the main character wakes up it's all been a dream and actually he works at a post office or like that without 
without any explanation, season eight starts and they're all fired, fire department officials now. Um, so like they're the audience, I think is a different, potentially a different audience of people who are watching like TNT. Um, the captain is black and gay. There's, um, an openly bi woman who is also Hispanic on the show. And they did, they've done a really good job of handling like sexuality and, and talking, having like open conversations about that. However, it's still a cop show and it is like a copaganda show for sure because and this isn't this develops in later seasons they they become it's clear that the writers are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the fact that they're writing a cop show so there's an actual like moment where the head of the department announces we're at war with the nypd because the nypd like wants to keep doing stop and frisk and the nypd is racist and there's an episode where a cop tries to arrest one of the black cops um for just like walking through his neighborhood a white cop in a different precinct and like so that's that's they they take on police brutality and like police racism in that episode and it's the thing is that like at least my take on it is that the more that they try to tackle these real life issues with like how policing actually works the worse the show gets mm. because they fundamentally can't address these problems within the framework they've created for themselves yeah so i feel like brooklyn 99 either needs to be a complete fantasy situation in which the nypd functions the way that like the nypd functions in law and order which in some ways is just indefensible and they can't do it or it can't be a cop show at all but what it's trying to do where it's like, well, there's a good defense, there's a good like public defenders group, like not public defenders like the lawyers, but that they're literally like defending and serving the, the public in the 99th precinct in Brooklyn. But the rest of the NYPD is corrupt is like clearly bullshit. Um, and I think the show is like literally falling apart because it it can't sustain that kind of criticism and still like hold up to any kind of scrutiny. You have to like, for a show to, to, to work, you have to like believe in the premise. Like Dick Wolf believes in the police and law and order makes sense as a show and it is blatant propaganda. Michael Schnur doesn't know what to do about cops and it's very clear from the way that his show is written. Okay, can I just say really quickly that there is a Dick Wolf that we stand in a big way and he's a Marxist economic economist who um has a uh a podcast called economic update with richard wolf um <laughs> and he's truly one of my heroes and so when you were first talking about dick wolf i was like wait where is this going do we have to cancel dick wolf <laughs> no different dick wolf uh different definitely wolf. we stan marxist uh economist uh richard wolf we highly recommend economic update with richard wolf <laughs> <laughs> that's brandon's like favorite thing to listen to so it's mm. really it is really really good but it's also on at our house constantly <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> um so when i was thinking about this um and my own experience um for me personally i never really watched any cop shows but there are there is a lot of propaganda in children's shows, which is very mm. disturbing. So like even Sesame Street, I cringe a little when they're like, this looks like Mr. Policeman. And that's like, you know, the fire person and the mail person and like all of these like service kind of people. Um, so even just like that, you know, and always talking about cops being helpful. And it, it extra disturbs me with Sesame Street because, you know, it takes place 
it's an urban setting. Um, and we just know that like, that's not how cops are in those neighborhoods. Um, so that's really um, obvious. And then also CNN has been doing these kind of like kids town halls with Sesame Street recently. So they've done them about COVID-19 and then they did one about racism recently and we watched the racism one and um, the baby is like a super huge Elmo fan. So we were very excited mm. about it. And the Elmo parts were good. Actually, they talked about protesting and racism. And uh, but then when you got to the kind of like more CNN talking heads part of it, the way that they frame things and talked about like, well, most cops are helpers, but sometimes some, some cops are not helpers or like Oof. sometimes cops have racism and like the watching um, the CNN talking heads try to like make that palatable and not piss anybody off and talk to children made me like nauseated. Um, mm. So even in places like that, we see it and kids absorb that. So that's like one thing I thought I would mention. We just start really young telling yeah. kids this message that cops are helpers. Yeah. There's a lot of like, this is a weird kind of um, propaganda, but children's toys too. Yeah. So there's a lot of like power wheels, kind of cars that kids can ride in that are cop cars um, or like little, like, you know, here's like a cop helmet and a badge and like playing cops and robbers. So, like, Isn't there of- like a cop Barbie? I'm very sure that there is. Yeah. Barbie can be anything, even a fascist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's disturbing when you think about what that actually does because we're encouraging kids to to play that and like that this is a hero along the lines of like Superman. You could be Superman or a police officer, <laughs> um, and it's just really insidious because children especially young young children don't understand the difference between advertising and like content if they're Mm -hmm. watching a show for example Mm -hmm. they don't know where that delineation is so they just like absorb everything as fact so right that's disturbing and then when you like layer on top of that the fact that we know that anyone who has a black child is having to tell their child i know sesame street told you cops are helpers but you have to be different with police right you can't this message is actually not for you um and that just breaks my heart so i wanted to mention that and then kind of uh on a little bit of a i guess kind of a lighter note or a sillier note because all of these buddy cop movies are silly um (laughs) but there are a ton of uh, propaganda kind of movies the first buddy cop sort of movie was, I think, a Kurosawa movie in like the late 40s. So that the genre goes back a really long way. And they mm. just have like kept just adding in more bad jokes. But the basic storyline is two cops. They're usually pretty different from each other. And they do like a lot of awful stuff. And they really bungle all their police work. But it's to catch the bad guys. So it's somehow all OK. Um, so like think Lethal Weapon, Bad Boys 1, 2, and Bad Boys for Life rush hour um and they're all told through the eyes of the cop uh protagonists yeah i also just want to say that this just goes to show that thelma and louise is not only a feminist icon film but it's also anti-cop because they were like we can't go to the cops we have to keep outrunning them because they won't believe us because they're misogynist also doesn't take into account race but it does just you know we love we love thelma and louise um, Queen and Slim also. I don't know if anybody else saw Ooh. that, but um, I haven't, but I've been wanting to see it. Is it good? Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, but it's the same kind of thing where they get into an altercation with a police officer who pulls them over and 
Um, he is obviously really abusing his power and he pulls a gun on them and it looks like he's going to kill them and they, in the scuffle, end up killing the cop and they have the same realization of like, what do we do? We can't go to the cops about the cops and um, we're basically screwed on this. And it's funny because we were, we just rewatched it today actually and I said to Brandon, you know what's really strange about the moment that we're in now as a country is like I think at the time this movie was made nobody could imagine popular sentiment not um being on the side of the cop but I think if it were to happen like right now you might think like well I know I shot a cop but like this seems like largely public sentiment against cops is not great right now so I wonder if that would at all change like the calculations about that Hmm. especially if there was like footage of it yeah yeah it's a good question um but yeah so propaganda is is everywhere obviously it's it's good that we brought up some like antidotes to propaganda um films uh there there are things that you can watch that are not shoving police propaganda down your throats um if there are things that you enjoy that are still police propaganda we're not telling you you can't like them i rewatched uh 21 jump street and 22 jump street with uh, Channing Tatum and the other guy recently and honestly I think they held up again it's it's propaganda but it is very funny propaganda so like what you like just be critical of the media that you're watching and know that they definitely have an agenda um, speaking of an agenda we have an agenda um, and that is to tell you about the NYPD um, and I thought it would be helpful maybe this is not surprising to give some historical context for like what is happening right now on the streets of New York. Um, so yeah, let's let's dive into that. Cool. Yeah, before we talk about like the history of New York police specifically, um, I just wanted to read a passage from the book Revolting Prostitutes, which we have an episode on if you haven't heard it yet. But yeah, they just have this section that um, talks really well about like why police became a thing and also the relation with um, border patrols as well. So I think that that is important context here. In the early 19th century, Northern United States and United Kingdom professionalized police forces, professionalized police forces were organized in response to a restive urban working class organizing against bad working and living conditions. As historian David Whitehouse explains, the state needed a way to control burgeoning crowds, protests and strikes without sending in the army which risked creating working class martyrs and further radicalizing the populace. Thus, the police were designed to inflict generally, in italics, non-lethal violence to protect the the interests of capitalism and the state. The situation is not so different today. With police citing authorization from the president of McDonald's to justify arresting restaurant workers protesting for better wages. Today's immigration controls are also largely a product of the 19th century. They rely on ideas of racial inferiority propagated by white Europeans to justify slavery and colonialism. Jewish refugees arriving in Britain in the 1880s and 1890s were met by a surge in anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitic tracts claimed at the time that the white slave traffic is carried out everywhere by Jews. This racist panic led to the enactment of the Aliens Act of 1905, which which contained the first recognizably modern anti-immigration measures in Britain. In the U.S., the first federal immigration restrictions included the Page Act of 1875, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and the Scott Act of 1888. 
These targeted Chinese migrants, particularly sex workers, and devoted substantial resources to attempting to attempting to discern wives from prostitutes. Along with racism, anxieties about commercial sex are embedded in the histories of immigration controls. These are legislative spaces where race and gender co-produce racist categories of exclusion. Men of color as traffickers, women of color as helpless, seductive, infectious, both as threat to the body politic of the nation. Police and border violence are not anonymous are not anomalous or the work of bad apples. They are intrinsic to these institutions. The feminist movement should thus be skeptical of approaches to gender justice that rely on or further empower the police or immigration control. Black feminists such as Angela Davis have long criticized feminist reliance on the police and note the police appear as the most benevolent protectors in the minds of those who encounter them the least. For sex workers and other marginalized and criminalized groups, the police are not a symbol of protection, but a real manifestation of punishment and control. The end. Ooh. Thanks for reading that, Zoe. <laughs> yeah, damn. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's an, I mean, snaps. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that they explain it really well and that mm-hmm. that's important to understand that this is how all cops have come to be. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the New York's New York specifically um, had the second official police force in the United States. Boston um, was the first, and it was established in 1845 after the city previously had a neighborhood wash scheme. So, it's important to note that this is before the Civil War. Um, that uh, the sort of forms of policing that were being dis sort of um, created in the South were different, were largely in the form of slave patrols. Um, and uh, it's also important to note that even in the North, jails were frequently used to house um, Black people who were su- suspected of being runaway and uh, enslaved people. Um, but the actual police force in the North, police forces, as Zoe just uh, just said, developed um, uh, primarily to cons- to uh, constrain like a growing urban proletariat. So that's what we're looking at um, in 1845 when the police force in the in New York was formed. Um, I'm not going to go into like the full story, but it is worth noting that in 1857, 13 or 12 years later, uh, the New York state government wanted to replace the municipal police with a new metropolitan police force that was had a little bit more oversight, had like a specific sort of structure. Um, And uh, the municipal police straight up refused to disband. So at that point, New York City had two police forces. The police forces literally fought a war against each other on the streets of New York. One of the two groups of police literally tried to arrest the mayor. Um, it was a giant fucking mess. My Eventually, the, the new police force that was created by the state ended up triumphing. The old police force was eventually disbanded. I bring this up partly because it's um, actually very funny to me that this happened, but also because I think it's something to think about when we talk about abolishing the police. It's not an argument against abolishing the police by any means. I think that that's an important step and needs to be taken. Um, but we have to be prepared for resistance on the part of the force. Uh, total disarmament is obviously super important. But yeah, we should not expect that police officers are going to just take it lightly that we are um, calling for their disarmament and disbandment and defunding all of that, as we can see with what's happening on the streets right now. Especially because with like the Blue Lives Matter stuff, like they see their profession as like so much of an identity. Mm-hmm. Like it's fucking creepy as shit, but yeah, like cops 
obviously take their job very seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you, if it gave you the right to literally murder people without any consequences, like, of course they, they are like not ready to give up that power. So it's going to be a fight. Like the, the move to abolish police is, it's going to be like a long fight. It's not going to happen overnight, but um, we're obviously making like really exciting progress right now. Um, You know, so to talk about police violence, um, the history of like police brutality in New York is literally as old as the police department itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to quote Gary Potter, who's a historian. Uh, he says that early American police departments shared two primary characteristics. They were notoriously corrupt and fr- flagrantly brutal, which is certainly the case of the NYPD in the 19th century. There's a lot of examples of police just absolutely beating people with billy clubs, um, particularly the city's poor. They were taking bribes. They were accountable to individual politicians instead of to the people. They got away with a hell of a lot of violence. It was like a bad scene. And we could go into like another uh, series of examples of police violence over the years, but it probably makes sense just for the sake of time and, you know, for the sake of not boring listeners to jump ahead to more recent times. So this episode doesn't just become a list of examples of the police beating the shit out of people or shooting people from the 19th century to the present. Right. Um, yeah, I wanted to like, (laughs) obviously this is just echoing what Kellen was just saying, but a lot of people, including like, hey, my stepmom, what's up, Margie, uh, think that this is like such an extreme response to something that hasn't been going on for very long, meaning like the protests and things like that. Um, well, dear listeners, you know, just as well as we do, that police brutality is just an extension of white supremacist systems that the U.S. was built on. Um, but like just for one example to pull out of your pocket at the dinner table on an April morning in 1973, cop Thomas Shea shot 10 year old Clifford Glover in Jamaica, Queens, killing him. Shea's defense was that he thought the unarmed child had a gun. Um, and Shea was charged with murder and tried in 1974, but was acquitted by a predominantly white jury, obviously. Um, and again, like Helen was saying, like, it's it's not really helpful to just like drag these things on. But it is important to know, like, as I said on last week's episode, like it, I am seeing a lot of people think about frailty and like what frailty looks like, especially here in Buffalo when we have that, like, again, still a lot of stuff going on with um, the 75 year old white man who was pushed over by the cops I'm sorry, I shouldn't say pushed over, was very like seriously assaulted and pushed by the cops. But again, I think when we think about like these things, like a 10 year old person being shot and killed, like these are not new things. None of these things are new. And cops have been doing this for as long as they've been in existence. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, There's another story from a few years prior of um, another example of cops just literally murdering a child um, in New York. Uh, um, In this case, it was that I was going to talk about. It was the murder of um, 15-year-old James Powell in 1964. The story behind that situation is that James and a couple of other kids were called racial slurs and hosed down by one of their white neighbors. Um, And this is a really, I mean, this racial slurs are obviously charged. 
Um, but uh, the, the hosing too is like a really racist charged action in the context of the civil rights protesters who are being dispersed by water cannons and hoses in other parts of the country at the exact same time. So in 1964, this was like a very, it was obviously if you're spraying somebody with a hose wall, calling them the N-word, um, it's racist, but it was especially so um, in, in the broader national context. Mm-hmm. The kids apparently started throwing rocks and garbage cans lid, garbage can lids at the kit at the man accosting them. Um, an off-duty NYPD lieutenant came out of a nearby shop and then shot one of the kids three times. Um, the officer later claimed that James had a knife, uh, which one? Yeah, okay, sh- sure, I definitely believe that. Um, and two, obviously, would not justify his uh, shooting death at the hands of a white cop. One of the reasons to bring this up is that in response. I mean, besides the fact that it is obviously just absolutely horrendous, um, but that but that James Powell's murder was a larger catalyst for for things happening um, in New York. So in response to James Powell's murder, Harlem and other predominantly black areas of the city erupted into um, what have been called the Harlem riots of 1964. Um, what really happened were protests against police brutality and forcibly an oversight of the police over the series of a series of several days. Um, there was uh, like, you know, the sort of standard like rocks being thrown at police. Um, there are a few Molotov cocktails that were dominated or documented, but uh, there was also a lot of the police beating the shit out of people. More than 500 people were injured. Um, and the officer who murdered James Powell was brought before a grand jury who refused to indict him. Um, another example of like just terrible misconduct by the NYPD occurred in 1988 with what was called the Thompson Square riots when police were sent to clear, I just have to read this quote, drug pushers, homeless people, and young people known as squatters and punks out of the park. Um, The city imposed a closing time on the park. Uh, New Yorkers will think of the curfew that was on, um, was underway over the past couple of weeks. Uh, They imposed a curfew just on the park specifically and in enforcing it and in trying to clear out the park, not just during the enforcement uh, of the curfew, police were literally cracking skulls. Even the New York Times, which we know is an apologist for the police, called it a police riot there were more than a hundred separate incidents, uh, incident reports of police brutality filed for just literally two days of action. Literally just police wailing on bystanders. A New York Times reporter caught cops on camera beating up a couple that had just come out of a grocery store. There's video that quickly went public of police hitting people already on the ground over and over with riot sticks. I'm sure this sounds familiar to a lot of people uh, who've seen what's been going on um, You know, 30 years later today. Um, These are just like a couple of examples of specific incidents of police killings and police brutality that I wanted to bring up in the context of New York. There are literally hundreds more. Could keep going for for hours, but as Laura said, this is not not like a new thing in New York. Um, um, I also wanted to talk about stop and frisk, which was an actual policy. Stop and frisk as a strategy has been in use since the 70s and not just in New York, but it was dramatically expanded under Michael Bloomberg in 2002 when he took office. At the peak of the program in 2011, more than 685,000 people, so that's 685 
thousand people that would make the the people who were stopped over the course of one year in new york into a, a major metropolitan area one of the like 20 biggest cities in the united states could be formed just by the people who were stopped in one year under stop and frisk by the cops in new york city um as a reminder, stop and frisk is where police officers can decide somebody just looks suspicious and then stop them and then frisk them for drugs and weapons. Um, I think it's also worth noting that only 12% of those, again, 685,000 stops resulted in any conviction. So it's not like it was even a good use of police time, even if you were to consider conviction rates a good indicator of police time. And of course, most importantly, these actions were carried out almost exclusively in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods and overwhelmingly against Black and Hispanic New Yorkers. Um, the program is racist. Even Bloomberg himself has acknowledged that the program targeted Black and Hispanic people overwhelmingly, um, even though he claimed that that was just because they committed more crimes, which we talked about um, on our Patreon episode about Bloomberg, but like, wow. Yeah, that guy fucking sucks. <laughs> yep. Just like Helen was saying, uh, Bloomberg is a piece of shit. Um, he literally called the police force, quote, Bloomberg's little army. Um, I mean, they have more corp cops in their force than the total FBI. So, I mean, yeah, but just like the openness with which he was able to just be like, yeah, this is my little army. Uh, there's just literally a zero facade between distinguishing what the police are meant to do and what the army does. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely don't want to make it seem like Bloomberg is the only shitty mayor on this issue in recent times. Um, Rudy Giuliani, you know, before 9-11 was making a name for himself being tough on crime, which uh, really just meant engaging in hyper-policing methods. Um, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani also presided over the murder of Amadou Diallo, a, an unarmed Ghanaian man whom a group of plainclothes police officers fired at 41 times. Um, those officers were acquitted too, by the way. Um, I also think it's really important to note that he oversaw the police torture and subsequent convictions of the Central Park Five, who, of course, we all know were wrongfully accused of raping and beating a woman in 1999. Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little more about the Central Park Five. Um, the There is a, do a Ken Burns documentary on it, which I would recommend. I have seen it. It is very intense. Um, but yeah, so essentially a white woman was um, raped in Central Park and they, there was a group of teens, five teens, they were all black and Latino and they had been, I believe that they had been at the park. However, um, there was significant evidence that they had not been involved in the case with this woman. And like the cops knew that they knew that their DNA didn't match. There was like plenty of evidence that they did not do it. Um, and they were convicted anyway, because they just wanted to like get the case done with because like the one thing that I guess the reason why like a lot of white people don't want to abolish police is because they do feel like police keep us safe. And so in order to maintain that, when there are cases like this, where like a white woman is harmed in Central Park, they have to do something about it to make it look like they're doing something about it, which they're not because they knew that these boys didn't do it. Um, and obviously like it ruined their lives. They, um, they ended up being acquitted because this like serial rapist who the cops had a ton of other evidence against 
and who, who matched the DNA from the woman's rape kit, like came forward like years later. Um, but yeah. And there's like, of course, plenty of cases like this where people right. are knowingly wrongfully committed. Um, and yeah, just super fucked up. Cool. Yeah. I want to correct myself. I was misremembering, um, you know, to only, only, uh, give Giuliani shit for stuff he actually did. The central park five case, I said it was in 1999. I misremembered it's 1989. Uh, this probably tells you, uh, some of how young or old, depending on your perspective I am. Um, but yeah, 1989. Um, so it was not under Giuliani that this occurred. Um, and so this was not uh, specifically his fault. It is, however, um, a real, like still significant, still uh, an important re reminder of like how fucked up the New York Police Department is. Um, again, worth noting that the kids who were charged with the murder were coerced into confessing via uh, literal police torture. Um, and so, yeah, not Rudy Giuliani's fault, just a different mayor's fault uh, in 1989. <laughs> On the subject of shitty mayors of New York, though, uh, we also have Bill de Blasio, who came after Michael Bloomberg, who has just massively mishandled the recent protests. And I think this is probably a good transition um, into talking about what the New York police department is like today and how it's functioning in the context of the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah, totally. Um, so just like Kellen said, like, if I'm going to give Bloomberg shit, I'm also going to give de Blasio shit, too. Um, also, de Blasio, when he got elected, was elected as a, a quote unquote progressive. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And so I think that is important context because people were really, really fed up of Bloomberg and wanted change and thought that they were getting change with Bill de Blasio. Very like Obama type vibes. Yeah. Um, While I'm out here subtweeting people in this episode, the leftist man that one time would not stop telling me how Bill de Blasio was a great mayor for the working class. I remember and I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bye, bitch. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, de Blasio is a piece of shit, too. We've all seen the viral video of the cop car driving into a crowd of protesters who had set up a barricade. You know, typical protect and serve shit. Anyways, de Blasio's response, quote, I do believe the NYPD has acted appropriately. So any fucking <sighs> de Blasio fans out there need to chill their fucking role. Um the NYPD continues to act like an army and mafia. Uh, the NYPD is the largest police force in the United States with $5.6 billion annual budget um, and 36,000 uniformed officers under the leadership of who has been called one of the, quote, most progressive mayors in the country, unquote, which is obviously hilarious. 36,000 officers. 36,000. 30, that's insane yeah jesus christ <sighs> so yeah another thing i wanted to talk about um because i think in addition to nypd having some like specific shit to them i think there's some just like we want to abolish police we also want to abolish prisons and they go hand in hand but they are different things and i did want to talk about rikers island um 
And so those of you that aren't aware, Rikers Island is like essentially a a trash heap island. It's like an island built on toxic waste that is a detention facility that has committed some of the worst uh, human rights atrocities we have on record uh, within the carceral state. People who have watched Law & Order will be familiar with the casual mention of Rikers. This guy's going to Rikers. Yeah. There you go. Sure. Um, They have some of the most aggressive solitary confinement Mm -hmm. um, setups as well as some of the worst and most aggressive correctional officers on duty. Not to say that, like, obviously everywhere anyone who's fucking doing that is bad, but Rikers really, really, really is notorious. So um, New York City pushed for Rikers Island to be closed, which it will be. Um, I think this fall is what I read. But, I don't know the timeline. Yeah, I'm not really sure. I know it was voted out last fall. I think with everything with COVID, everything's probably going to be shifted as, you know, whatever. But because it's closing down, four prisons are popping up in its place. And again, this is under de Blasio's fucking watch. Um, so he like got clapped on the back by libs being like yes you closed rikers island but like boom is opening four new prisons so like just don't be fooled by this very 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 notorious uh prison that has like truly some of the worst atrocities in the united states on record um and what is happening on that so just kind of like keep keep a vigilant eye Yeah, I do just want to plug there is a group called No New Jails NYC, which Mm. is doing a lot of work to try to prevent them from opening those new jails. So um, we can link to that if folks are in New York or like interested in getting involved with that. I know some people that are involved and it's a a good um, group. Yeah, yeah. No, Rikers is just absolutely disgusting. Um, People will probably be familiar with the case of um, Khalif Browder, Mm -hmm. who was jailed at Rikers for three years without a trial for the crime that he was accused of was stealing a backpack. Um, After three years, much of which was spent in solitary confinement, he was finally released because, again, he had not actually been convicted of any crime, had not gone to trial at all, um, and ended up um, committing suicide uh, not much long, not long after, um, returning home. I should mention that he was 16 years old when he was sent to Rikers. And he had multiple brain uh, concussions, like, uh, traumatic brain injuries from, from his time, from his time at Rikers. So that, uh, they believe contributed to his declining mental health. Like, cause when you have, um, traumatic brain injuries your likelihood for things like suicidal tendencies are much much heightened um and so cleef browder did unfortunately commit suicide after his release but it is you know not not just the psychological uh treatment of him within that space but also the physical Physical, and then therefore physiological ramifications of his time there as well yeah i think that's also a really good point about how um Black children and children of color are often tried as adults and um, there shouldn't be any prisons, but they're sent to like adult prisons versus like juvie where um, a lot more like white kids are sent. And um, yeah, so that's like a pretty common phenomenon, which is super fucked up, but abolish all of it. So obviously the the carceral state is really tied in with the police state. Um, 
I wanted to also just talk about some of what's been going on, um, you know, recently over the last couple of weeks with the NYPD. Um, I know, if, uh, you know, some of us have sort of seen that in action. Um, uh, I will say, like, I've been to protests in New York um, where literally everyone was wearing a mask. Um, you know, it's like you are, there are thousands of people and you see one to two people not wearing masks with the exception of the NYPD who are none of whom are wearing masks. Um, and it's a clear, like, just fuck you to the protesters. This is not by any means the worst thing that has been happening, but I do think it's actually representative. And it's the kind of thing that you can tell your older relatives and they'll be like, what? At least my older relatives who are all wearing masks. Uh, but yeah, like there are several examples that I've heard, um, of the police weaponizing COVID, mm -hmm. um, not just with the, them, none of them wearing masks situations, but in situations where protesters are kettled, where they're trapped by police and then, you know, arrested en masse. Um, there are examples of police forcing protesters to take off masks once they've been arrested, um, which is obviously really unsafe, especially because people are kept in police vans or taken to precincts and kept in like very close quarters. Um, somebody that I know and trust uh, told a story about being forced into a van, having the police uh, you know, force everybody to take their masks off and then want a police officer when somebody wasn't complying with the take off your mask thing, pulling the mask down off of the protester's face and actually spitting in his face. Um, so the, the, the pandemic itself is being weaponized by the police, but there's also been just incredible use of like violence, um, you know, traditional physical violence um, over the past couple of weeks with uh, the NYPD. Laura mentioned the example of, uh, you know, police driving um, cars into barricades. There are so many videos. I mean, I like countless videos that I've seen of, pe of police attacking people who are not even part of protests. Not that being part of a protest would open you up to being attacked, but for example, people riding their bikes by protests uh, police officers hitting them with nightsticks, police officers dragging people across the ground as they're even trying to leave protests that are, again, I think the, like the idea of a peaceful protest is a stupid, it's a stupid thing, is a red herring. But these are peaceful, like, you know, people are not, I don't know, it doesn't matter, but people are exercising their right to assembly and are not threatening the police in any material way um, and having, uh, you know, eyes beaten out limbs broken, heads like cracked, mm -hmm. literally. Um, and it's it's been happening day in and day out here. Yeah, yeah. I also um, just want to add to that in terms of the protests. I've been to, like I went um, to one that was in lower Manhattan and there was a much lower police presence and um, it remained like it was a lot less tense because there were a lot less cops there um and the ones that i've been to in brooklyn which are often in um you know neighborhoods where there are more people of color and lower income um there have been so so many cops and it's been a lot more like tense and violence and violent um which like I'm sure doesn't surprise anyone, but it's just like kind of seeing those stark differences from like day to day of going to 
um, protests. Like the, I went to one that was in Flatbush and there were like more cops on one corner than I have ever seen in my life, like hundreds at this one intersection. And we were like in a standoff with them for hours. And yeah, none of them were wearing masks. They were all like smirking at us and they were like holding out the batons and just like manhandling them and like staring at us and just like, you know, threatening violence, of course, um, which was like so different than the one in Manhattan where there were like a few cops, but they like were much less confrontational um, and it was like a lot more white people. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that there's the conditioning that all of us um, in America have around like race. And then there's also like the conditioning that cops have that facilitates kind of the disparity in treatment you're talking about. But there's also like legal reasons for that too. I can't remember what the Supreme Court case was off the top of my head, but there's uh, one where they basically said like cops can't um, shoot anyone as they're running away unless they feel like they feel that person is a threat, a credible threat. Um, And when you think about things through that lens and then how, you know, we view black people as inherently more threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you see like in the officer's mind, they're like, oh, well, this is, this situation is more of a threat, not just mm-hmm. to me, but like a threat to society, a threat to the status quo. And that just heightens things. Um, and I'm sure they feel like, oh, there's going to be less, less outcry if I shoot a black person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know like we're talking about NYPD, but, you know, as like kind of a closing thing on at least on my end, I do want to say that my experience with the Buffalo Police Department has been really similar. I think it's really easy for cities outside of New York City to feel like, okay, well, we are we can't be compared to New York City. It must be so different than what happens here because of the scope and size and whatever. But really, police have been trained around the country to serve and protect capital at all costs. And many of the police departments are linked by the unions they're protected by, which like literally trains them in how to get away with murder um, and uh, gets them out of out of um, trouble if they do. So which makes me, you know, bad unions make me so fucking mad, obviously. Um, But, you know, I just think it's important to know that like, yes, NYPD has a lot of shit going on, but I also feel like. You know, when I go to protests locally, you know, if you listen to some of our previous stuff, like I uh, was handled in in a rough way by cops here. A lot of cops have been doing a lot of shitty things here. Tear gas, rubber bullets, all the same things we're seeing all over the country. Um as well as, you know, uh, because I live in a in a border city, having the National Guard pretty much at every turn. Um, and I just wanted to say that, like, what you're experiencing in your city is also probably feeling like terrorizing because I'm sure your police force is doing the same. So as we were saying with the examples in media, um, you know, cops really there is this really deep propaganda and i think we can almost like gaslight ourselves into thinking that like we don't have the right to be as outraged as people in new york city or people in minneapolis but we do have we like the outrage of your own community is justifiable yes yeah absolutely 
But yeah, so that's our show. Um, as always, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. We are at Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. We have started a Discord channel on our Patreon as well as um, this coming Sunday will be our first meeting of our abolitionist and anti-racist reading group. So feel free to check those out at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. And you can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And yeah, I think that's it. Awesome. Cool. Yay. Love you guys. <laughs> Love you. Love you. Love you.